What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark State. And again, once again, we get on our knees and thank the wonderful people who support this podcast over on Patreon uh, and help keep us going. And also on the Bestseller Academy. It's been a joy this last week. We've had our new intake, loads of new fresh faces uh, getting really, really excited. Already some good news. We're going to put the social media at the end of the show, the wins and everything. You'll hear about uh, how they've already hit the ground running and it's it's changing how they write. So if you want to discover more about the Academy, go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com experiment.com and uh, check it out and mr state you know i was looking we were chatting before we started recording and we were looking at the diary and we thought hang on a minute we're about a month off a month off finishing mm. our sixth year of this podcast folks yeah boy, and boy. and we thought what we've something we've never done which you know we've we've heard about we've heard about authors doing it i know mark you've done it as an author but we thought we've never actually run a survey of listeners to find out what you like what you can't stand what would be ideas <laughs> you've got now. for the podcast yeah yeah, yeah i know <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe not so much of that but we th- we're going to be putting out a survey in the next week so if you are part of the mailing list uh, you will receive a survey. It's uh, we'll, we'll do it it's annually, I think. We'll do an annual survey for the podcast. We want to know your feedback. And if you're not on the mailing list, please, please, but you listen to this podcast, please go and sign up to the mailing list so we can get your feedback. And then we'll share a bit about what we find out. And then we'll see, like, look at what we might do to, you know, mix things up a bit in the future. So look mm. out for that survey. And uh, it'd be absolutely fascinating. So again, practicing all that great stuff we've learned from all our authors, Mark, isn't it, really? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, it's we talk about these things a lot. It's really just you and me, and we have a couple of, you know, people who help out. So we don't have a big team of people to corral to do this kind of stuff. And this is all a lot of work, isn't it? You know, so It is, um, certainly is. Absolutely. It's only taken us six years <laughs> to work this out. But no, it's really good. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we would love, obviously, you know, we want to uh, look at how we can, you know, spread the word far and wide about the podcast because mm. it's we, we're just so inspired by all the stories we get of people that find the podcast and sometimes dig the, they, they get themselves out of a hole, the writing hole that they're in, gives them that little pep, you know, talk every week, a little bit of inspiration. So, yeah, do look out for that, folks. And we really appreciate, just to thank everyone in advance who, who was, um, are, you know, do that. We'll give a little prize as well if you, if you, if you answer the survey there'll be a kind of a, a, a draw to win something fun so please do look out for that but mr stay talking of exciting things happening in your world as well something big broke this morning on the news didn't it mr stay's world yeah well i've known about it for a couple of days so i had to keep stum about it but um the good news is is unwelcome 
that film, What I Wrote, uh, directed by John Wright, uh, is going to premiere at the Sidges uh, Festival in October. Sidges is uh, a town just a little bit south of Barcelona in Spain, and the Sidges Festival is this very, you know, much loved and high regarded fantasy horror festival. And so people are finally going to see real people, real people, not film people, real people are finally going to see the film. And um, yeah, so I've booked my ticket. Uh, I'm going out there. I've Brilliant. got me, you know, it's by the sea. So I've got my bikini. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, I'm ready to rock. So uh, as, long as, I'm really, as long as it's a bikini and not one of those things Borat wore when he was mankini, uh, yes. He's <laughs> <laughs> nice. How ex- how, it's very nice. But it's really, it's really awesome that, um, I mean, firstly, film festival. How yeah. fantastic is that? Because that's We're, huge, isn't it? I mean, so people who are, people who are right, sitting right in their book this week, thinking and dreaming about it becoming a film one day tell tell us what what the importance that film festivals briefly obviously because we do a whole episode on this but what what role do film festivals play in the kind of launching of a kind of a big movie it's generally where the buzz starts you know so uh, robot overlords uh, launched at the london film festival uh, in 2015 i think or was, yeah 2015 and um, it was great because it, it got the word of mouth going you have a little premiere you have your photos taken people come and see it there's a q and a afterwards you get interviewed and things like that so it's it gets that momentum rolling um and uh, that's what we're hoping with um with sidges as well so it's uh, it's cuz th- i still don't know what the release dates are but if imdb is to believed uh unwelcome is coming out in the uk at the end of jan uh, i'm not sure about other parts of the world but uh so um you know and it's also an industry thing as well reviewers come to this bloggers come to this people who will help start getting the word out there as well as the hardcore fans because you know this is going to be this is going to be cinema goes who love fantasy and horror and want to you know be the cool kids who learn about this stuff before anyone else does. So mm-hmm. it is really important. Uh, it's, 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 um, and they've become particularly for genre pictures. If you've got something that's very strong, you know, you have LGBTQ uh, festivals now. You you have horror festivals. You you know, they're, they're, when they drill down to a specific genre, it can make all the difference when it comes to to launching a film. So. And it's sunny and it's by the beach, which is well, exciting. Barcelona. <laughs> Can't beat a bit of Barcelona in Can't the, in the winter. Yeah, right. I love it. Well, yeah. here's the other thing, though. You mentioned about the, the the film release date has been changing, but we've also heard this with authors, haven't we? Because there's a lot of – and I was actually in a bookshop the other day. I'll give a shout-out to Fireside Books, my local favourite uh, bookstore where I live. And I was chatting there with uh, Brian, who runs the store, and he said, yeah, he's seeing a lot of books – book release dates being pushed back because of the and now I didn't realize this he said due to supply chain issues yeah, 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 yeah. which which go to uh, specifically he was saying china and and you know all of the materials needed to print a book and what's happening and we've heard, and weirdly enough we've heard this from some of the major publishers as we in the background are setting up interviews with some multi-million selling authors there's one in particular i know that we've had to bump three months because that person's book can't mention any names because they're very well known but their yeah. book has been bumped back by three months yeah. and what they're having to do apparently at the kind of top level is they're prioritizing authors based on how big the author is like you know, like a Stephen King doesn't get bumped. You know, it's just, Stephen, your book's coming out as planned. But a lot of authors listening might say, yeah, this has happened to me, but they might not realise the reason why. Well, I don't know. It's This has been going on for quite some time. So my book, Ghost of Ivy Barn, was bumped from May to July. 
and it was because of paper. And my publishers yeah. were very straightforward about. It. They said, "Look, you know, we we're a big publisher. We're ordering paper well in advance, but there's still not enough paper around." I remember when I was at EasterCon in Easter, uh, Marcus Gibbs, who's been on the podcast a few times, he was saying that uh, Orion and Gollance, you know, they're struggling to book paper in advance. And if you're an indie publisher, it's going to be even more difficult. So this has been going on for quite some time. And it is, um, the the thing with China is they do, there's a lot of color printing done there. So those big mm. glossy cookery books that you have at Christmas, they're off, they'll usually be printed now and they'll usually be printed and that's your lot. So if it sells out, it sells out. You know, they, they can't go back because it takes so long to get them over because they come on from a slow boat to China, as the song goes. You know, they it takes a long time for them to get here as well. There are You can get some colour printing done in Spain and Italy, but there's still not the, you know, the economy of scale that you get with, with China. So, um, so yeah, that's that's been causing all sorts of problems. So you're going to see the cost of books go up. It's inevitable. Yeah, it's yeah. going to. They're going to. Well, like everything else in the world at the moment, it's going to get a bit more expensive. So, um, yeah, that's where. Well, we then are it's another. You know, ironically, it's another thumbs up to eBooks, isn't it? Because eBooks doesn't won't have the the physical challenges that. Um, no, uh, and but maybe you'll see that shifting more eBooks coming still, out possibly. Yeah, but you still have a cost associated. Look, you know, it's publishing, isn't it? They're, they're going to look for a excuse to put the money up whatever it is because like like businesses they're going to be paying more for electricity and gas and water and all these things as well they've all got very expensive offices in the most expensive regions of london so um yeah i you probably see well, see stuff go up i was all, thinking all more the from the i was thinking more from the perspective perspective of more ebooks coming out before their physical versions are available um because obviously i guess the challenge for major publishers is it's the cash flow and revenue. Like if everything gets delayed, then that, that affects the business, that affects the money coming in. So do they have to maybe just go with the ebook initially? I mean, because that traditionally doesn't usually happen, does it, in terms of ebook first, then hard copy, then then paperback? Depend. I mean, obviously, I've you know, people, digital first publishers, well, that's the model, you know, of course, yeah. as well. Uh, but something like the reason, I mean, we're talking about Stephen King not moving his pub dates and all those big brand authors. But the other reason they're difficult to move as well is you're talking about a worldwide marketing campaign yeah. where everyone's you know, zeroed in on a particular date. There's a lot at stake. They know if they move it a week forward or a week back, that might make the difference between them getting in the Sunday Times or New York Times bestsellers as well. Mm. It's, it's very, very strategic. So they're very particular about when when those pub dates are. So those are kind of set in stone. And as you say, because of that, they get the they get the priority on the paper and what have you. Uh, whereas the rest of us, you know, might get bumped around a bit. <laughs> take a ticket. Take a ticket. Yeah, exactly. It queue. is interesting, though, isn't it? Because there's a whole other dance that goes on behind all of this, which is there's certain weeks in the year which are the most important weeks for publishers to release. There's also who else is who else is going to be released in that week. You know, you think about major. You know, if somebody's got enough money to buy one book, and you and every major publisher's hitting their biggest author of the year in the same week you know, they're going to reduce sales. And so there's, it's so complicated, isn't it? Like then the whole supply chain issue, it just makes you appreciate, you know, we just go to the bookstore or we go, go to an online store and we buy the book, but what goes on to get that book there? It's, it's a whole other adventure, isn't it? Yeah. And with, and with the, with the movies, it's, um, it, there are different challenges there. I mean, we've, we've just seen Cineworld, which is the world's largest, largest exhibitor, 
yeah. filing for bankruptcy or is about yeah. to file for bankruptcy, which is disastrous, you know. So yes. I, I know I don't know why we've been moved. I mean, we, we're a Warner Brothers film, but I don't think we're we're Warner Brothers in the UK. We're we're a different distributor. Well, well, go in the US. So I don't think when this that might be why we've moved. I honestly, I'm the writer. No one tells me nothing. So, uh, but that might be. But also, I think exhibitors. There was a report recently saying there haven't been enough movies over the summer, certainly not enough big movies. And people are going to the big movies, but they're not necessarily going to that. You know, they're not the taking next, risks and yeah. seeing seeing films that are new and original. So seeing, you know, the dinosaur films and the Top Guns and, and what have you, but they're not always taking a risk to see something that's, that's new and original. So there's a lot of um, nervousness there. So, uh, but I, that's me speculating. I honestly don't know why why we've moved. There are so many moving parts to everything right oh, now yeah. in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even if you could find out one or two reasons, we don't know the other hundred knock on, like it's like one huge big domino effect yeah. that's happening and everyone's being knocked around. But fascinating time to be alive. Mm. Lots of challenges, obviously, but a really interesting time time to be alive. And hopefully things will settle down a bit. My, that's my, my wish is that maybe in the next few months, things, <laughs> famous last words, but anyway, um, but let, Mark, let's dive in. We've got a fantastic, fantastic interview today. Very, very inspiring. If you're feeling a bit down and you're feeling a bit, you need a bit of a, you know, a bit of a lift, let's have a dive in. And Mark, tell us about our, our amazing interview today, um, Luanne Goldie. Luanne Goldie, uh, she's lovely, absolutely wonderful. She's an award-winning writer. Her short story, Two Steak Bakes and Two Chelsea Buns, what a great title, uh, won the Costa Short Story Prize in 2017. Her debut novel, Nightingale Point, was long-listed for the Women's Prize. It was a Radio 2 book club uh, pick. Uh, she also did Homecoming, but she got a new book called These Streets, uh, which is set in a tower block and tells a story of all these incredible lives and is about being made homeless is 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 about the the world that we live in, you know. So it's um, it's an extraordinary book, full of life, absolutely full of life. And we talk about writing dialogue before anything else, choosing the point of view of characters when you got a large ensemble, and she talks about her work on covering letters and synopses and much much more. Brilliant stuff. Well, let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the lovely Luanne Goldie. Luan Goldie, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. Wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. Now you've got a new book out, These Streets, and I I've only just started looking at it, and I've I've read chapter one, and immediately I know who all these people are. I I you know I've I fall in love with them, and by the end of the chapter, it's completely heartbreaking. You can see it's a situation that far too many people are facing. Um it's it, the first chapter line is absolutely brilliant. I'm going to read the rest. But tell us about these streets. So these streets, it follows the story of Jess and her two teenage children. And Jess is just a normal working mum. She lives in Stratford in East London. And a lot of people know Stratford. It was the place where the 2012 Olympics were held, a place that went through a lot of regeneration. And she's been living there for her whole life with her family. And then one day her landlord tells her that he's selling up the property, he's moving on, and as a result, she has to move as well. And that's kind of where the novel opens, with Jess in this situation, like, oh, I've lived here forever with my family and now I have to find a new property in this very desirable area. And that opens up what happens in the rest of the book, which is Jess's, Jess's um, well, her, her trauma of trying to find another place to live with her family. Yeah, it's um, 
it's so heartbreaking because it's like I say, this is something that's happening to people all the time. This whole idea of gentrification, you know, and an area builds up and then the rents go up and then the landlords realize their houses are worth, you know, maybe five, six, seven times what they what they paid for them. They just sell up and get out and leave people really in the in in the stuck. Uh, but what really grabbed me uh, about this is that you you see the the dialogue actually it's, it's, it zings it bounces off the walls i read somewhere that you you write dialogue first and then you add the plot can you talk about that for a bit yeah it just makes sense to me to write the dialogue because i'm really character driven like i see them first and i can hear them um i hear their conversations and i try and work out what's going on then i start writing so i always write that way especially with novels not so much with short stories with novels i just write the dialogue and I usually go, I'll stop myself at 50,000 words. I won't let myself go over that now, just a dialogue, or it, it gets too hard when you come to actually write the novel <laughs> around just all this chit-chat. <laughs> and then um, the story sort of comes from that, and then I build in the rest around it. I don't know. That makes sense to me to work that way. No, it do- it does. It It really does. <laughs> and what I, find, what I find interesting is I think all of your novels so far are in the present tense as well. Is that where that comes from? That kind of because if you read a screenplay, that's in the present tense, and a screenplay mostly dialogue. And uh, looking at yours, it, you, you, you know, you're you're writing as the energy and life. I mean, it immediately comes to life because of that zinging dialogue. Do you think that might be why you're you're writing in present tense as well? Mm, not actually thought about that. Even when you said it, I had to think: Are they all in present tense? <laughs> I don't know. It's just the way I write. <laughs> it's just the way I, I hear it, you know. Mm-hmm. I just that's just how I hear it. So I, I right. write it down as it's happening. Brilliant. Fantastic. And for these streets, was this something that you had to do a lot of research for? Because this is like I say, this is something that's happening to a lot of people. Or is it just based on 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 the world around the people that you've been chatting to, the, you know, the the conversations you've had, or is it something you had to to sort of dig around? Mm, it's kind of a mix. I mean, I grew up in East London. I still live in East London now, and it's definitely, you know, we're always talking about it. I grew up in Hackney in particular, which is one of those areas that's gone through so much um, um, regeneration, whatever you want to call it. We always complain about it. <laughs> and now I'm in Newham. <laughs> I don't know. It's just one of those conversations that always comes up. And I've seen a lot of my friends go through this situation of having to move, having to find somewhere. And when I was teaching, there were a lot of children that were, the families were getting bounced around East London, getting pushed further and further out of London. Mm. Um, children leaving the school, moving really far away. So it, it's one of these issues that is, <laughs> you know, it comes up a lot. It's affecting so many people. So it wasn't that oh, I really want to write about this topic. It was just when I started thinking about Jess and her family, I knew that that, that this was their situation, really. Um, but yeah, it's just it's such a big issue. And it's something we need to talk about more because people talk about homelessness and we automatically think street homelessness, like mm. rough sleepers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we also need to talk about these families and they're just normal, a lot of them working families. And one thing happens, another thing happens, like Jess and Story, she she loses her job around the same time. And you can find yourself really quickly in this situation that you think that would never happen to me. Yeah. That would never touch my life. So it is a big issue. And so much of it is completely out of her control. You know, her landlord says, 
she could be out in a month. You know, he wants, he wants, he, he yeah. knows he only has to give her a month's notice. And I'm thinking yeah. for me, at my age, a month goes like that. You know, I just couldn't. <laughs> yeah. how, do you, how do you, she says something like, I couldn't even pair up on my shoes in a month, you know. Yeah, a, great a month is nothing. <laughs> you know, when you're a student, like I think when we were students, we were moving around quite a lot. Like you get thrown out of one house, share, you find another. <laughs> and, but the idea of having a family and having to pick up your whole life, anyone with kids, think about how much crap your kids have alone. Having to move out in a month is just, it's a nightmare, absolute nightmare. But this is what's happening to families. And you know, I did do a lot of research around it as well, but I didn't want to get too bogged down in the research right? because I found like people's personal experiences were so different from what the research was telling me. Um, for example, like there's a scene in the book where Jess goes to see, um, she goes to the local council to get some advice. And I read all the official advice, um, which people get from the council but then when I was listening to my friend's stories I was like this doesn't match up at all mm. you know someone at the council saying oh just stay in the property till your landlord gets the, the bailiffs to chuck you out and that's not the official line no that that's what people are hearing <laughs> so you know wow wow I'm the thing is this is yeah it's this, scary it is it's, it's terrifying it is absolutely terrifying and and that someone who's done nothing wrong who's done everything right and this is this is where the drama comes from, you know. And and also the family is at such a precarious point. There are kids in education that are about to go on to big things, big changes in their lives. Um, was that? Well, I, I'm guessing those are deliberate choices on your part, just to make it as calamitous as possible. Oh, that sounds terrible. No, I didn't <laughs> want to make it so terrible. <laughs> I just knew that's where the kids were. But any point, like if your kids, oh, your kids just settled into a nursery or. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, they've just settled into secondary school. Oh, they've just made friends. They're about to start college. They're all pivotal points, really, when you've got a family. Um, mm. So, yeah, I knew Jess's children were, well, they were teenagers and they were in secondary school and college. It's just the timing of it is mm. is not great. But there would be no good time for this to happen to you. No, no, I really. think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Let's um, Let's talk about how you got to uh, these streets and your other books and where it all started. Now, the... Earliest thing I can find is in 2012, you were shortlisted for the Grazia First Chapter Women's Book Prize competition. But you must have been writing before then. Where did it all, where did it all kick off for you as, as, a, as a writer? What, what inspired you as a child? I was always writing, always writing when I was younger, but mostly reading, just really bookish, yeah. always at the library. Like so many writers, I was just obsessed with it. And my mum was always reading to me as well. So that was just a, a constant. But I, I was a journalist, actually, a business journalist before I was a primary school teacher. I studied journalism at uni. thought, that's what I want to do. I want to write. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow ended up in journalism, which wasn't really the kind of writing that I should have been doing, maybe. <laughs> so I used to write for this um, magazine called New Media Age. And my specialist subject was social media. And this was way back in the day so I'd write stories about MySpace yeah MySpace launches in the UK <laughs> so this is really a long time ago you know no one cared about this stuff when I was writing about it um so I did that for a few years before I went into teaching so only when I went into teaching I realized oh, I want to write creatively I want to write fiction and then I started doing it as a hobby but I loved it so much I did a few courses um, joined a writing group and then the 
Grazia thing, that was my first kind of success, which was really exciting because then I thought, oh, well, maybe I could actually do this. Maybe it's something mm. that I'm good at, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's when I started taking it a bit more seriously and read and, my first novel, which no one has ever read and no one <laughs> ever will. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be amazed how many authors we have on the podcast who say exactly that. And I think it's a very common experience. Yeah. It's good. That's the one yeah. to get out the system, isn't it? Just to get yeah, get yeah, all your mistakes definitely. down yeah, <laughs> and then move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then in 2018, you won the, the, won the Costa Short Story Prize. And again, you know, amazing turning point. But between... There were six years between the Grazia First Chapter competition and the Costa Short Story Prize. Were you working on yeah. Nightingale Point in all that time or working on short stories? And, of course, you've got this, you know, got this life as a primary school teacher as well, which is all-consuming. All so what was mm. your, what was, what were you doing in those, those six years and what kept you going? So I was definitely working on that first novel. I was learning. Um, yeah, I was at writing group a lot. I was studying a lot. I was reading a lot. And then I... Probably, I started writing Nightingale Point as a short story and I took it to my writing group and I workshopped it and everyone was just like, it's too long. And my teacher was just like, this is so long. How long is this short story? And I remember it was 8,000 words and nothing had happened. She was like, it isn't a short story, is it? It's clearly a novel. But because I'd already written this novel and nobody wanted it, I was kind of like, why would I write another novel? I just want to write short stories. But yeah, it started getting longer and longer and longer. Um, and then I sort of finished it. You know, when you think, I finished this novel and put it out there. But luckily, the start of it was good enough to get an agent, finally. And I say that, it wasn't just, oh, I got an agent off the first few chapters. You know, I, I sent it off to tons and tons and tons yeah. of agents. Yeah. I spent weeks on the covering letter and the synopsis and all that sort of stuff. And then I got my agent and then she worked with me on the book. And then it went out on submission, did that whole thing, um, didn't sell, got very close with two publishers, with two editors, very, very close. I did rewrites for both of them, didn't sell. And then um, lots of other things happened. And then we put the novel to the side. And then I won the Costa. Right, right. So it was a... It was kind of, that novel was kind of around for a while and a lot of people had seen it, but people liked the writing, but they didn't want that particular novel. And I've spoken about it before. It was also around the time of Grenfell and Nightingale Point is about a tragedy that happens in a tower block. So a lot of people really, really didn't want that novel. Yeah. So... Just for listeners outside the UK, the I mean, um, Grenfell was a, a, a heartbreaking um, fire in a, in a tower block in London, and uh, it it was just devastating for all involved. So, uh, mm. if you've got something like that, I can I can kind of understand why people might want to want to veer away from it. But Nightingale Point was based on something that happened, but not over here. Was, wasn't it in, in Holland? Yeah. Something actually happened over there? Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, it's based on, really, really roughly, it's based on the Belmar disaster, which happened in Holland in the mid-90s, where it was just a horrible accident. There was a cargo plane and it crashed into a tower block. 
So it's something that when you grow up in Holland, it's part of your history. People know about it, but a lot of people here don't really know about it. Mm. Um, so that's what Nightingale Point is loosely based on, but it's set in East London. And it, of course, it's fictional. Yes, no, absolutely. But you say it's fictional, but it's full of people who feel real. And this is what I think you do so brilliantly. The people in your books feel so real. They feel so alive. Because I, I grew up on a housing estate and I'm reading and you know, I'm thinking, I know who these people are. And when, when you got a tower block, like full of different lives, how do you choose which stories to tell? How do you, which, because how do you pick out those, those characters that are going to be your points of view? Yeah, it's really difficult. And I don't think I worked out how to do it by myself <laughs> because the original book that went out, it had a slightly different cast of characters. I think Nightingale Point, like the finished version of Nightingale Point is from five different points of view. Right. But really, there were probably about 10 to start with. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and I really think I could write that book again with completely different people, you know, the same day, the same events, because there's so yeah. many other interesting voices um, that live in that fictional tower block in my head that I would like to write about their experience. But those were the strongest ones that got chosen, their stories. And they, they intertwine at some points um, because you do sort of cross over with people when you live that way. You see each other in the lift or mm. you hear your neighbor's kids crying through the wall or, <laughs> or, you know, some people you might live next door to them for 10 years and only say hi to them once or twice. Yeah. But I really wanted to capture that because that's what it's like when you grow up in that kind of environment. Right. Yeah. 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 And so for you, it was, again, coming back to that thing about you writing the dialogue, it was that, was it their voices? Was it, was it kind of the, the voices that chimed with you the most that, that the ones that you stuck with? Yeah, the voice. There were so many other voices I really liked, and they're not in the book. <laughs> so many other stories. Yeah, but the voices that are in the final book I do like, and they they all say something. And I understand now because people read the book and they they sort of gravitate to a particular person in it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess they were definitely the strongest voices yeah. to to make the final cut. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Brilliant. Then uh, we come to your second novel, Homecoming. Now, with um, with Nightingale Point, you know, you were workshopping that for years. You know, we you, were, you had plenty of time to sort of hone it into shape. Then suddenly you got a publisher going, okay, second novel. Uh, we want it in a hurry. Uh, yeah. how, how was that? How was that for you? So luckily, I had written most of Homecoming before Nightingale Point came out. Right. And I'm so happy that I had done that because Nightingale Point had been floating around and publishers um, didn't want it, but they all kept saying, let's read what you write next. So I, I did that. I went and got on with another novel and that became Homecoming. So, so much of it was already done. And I'm so thankful it was because when Nightingale Point came out, there was so much hype around it. And it was also just really, really busy. There was a lot of stuff to do, which I didn't, I hadn't really thought about before. I thought, you know, you get your book published, you've, you've done the work, yeah. <laughs> written the book. What was meant to happen then? But then it was like, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? And I was like, oh my God, you know, still teaching. And I've, I've got a daughter myself. So it was really, really busy. So I was so happy that I'd had most of Homecoming down. And then I wasn't distracted by all that noise as well that comes out. Well, because there was a lot of hype around the book. There was so much noise as well about it. So luckily homecoming was like in a good state <laughs> or I would have just been so stressed, like trying to quickly write this book. 
And, you know, there were points of the editing, the editing of Homecoming, the later stages, that it felt a bit like, it's a bit scary. I feel I need to spend another decade on this book before anybody reads it. Right. But, yeah, it's not but a thing, did, is it? Did that sort of ticking clock and that, that pressure, did that help you make decisions that you might otherwise have dwelled upon a bit longer? Did, 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 does it help you become more... You know, we talk a lot about killing your darlings and stuff like that when you're writing. Did did it help you make those decisions? You know what? I don't know, but I'm feeling it with uh, the third, third and fourth book. I think that's been that's been more of an issue for me. The timing, because when I first signed with um, with Harper Collins and someone there said, "Oh, we'd like you to be a book a year kind of author." And I was like, that sounds amazing. That was just like, wow, that's every writer's dream come true. And then <laughs> when I think about the reality of that, it makes me feel quite sick. <laughs> I, can't do it. I can't do it. And then you meet these amazing writers and they're like, yeah, I do two books a year. How are they doing it? That's amazing. Because um, I also want to do other things. Like I want to write short stories and I want to read other people's books and have time to enjoy other people's books. And just doesn't happen when you're writing a book a year. So I think I'm, I've always been a really disciplined writer anyway. Um, I don't do that like scrolling through social media when I'm meant to be writing. And I don't do that housework when I'm meant. I'm really, really disciplined. My writing time is, is precious. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm good at getting the work done and hitting the deadline. I think the only thing that's ever thrown me off, was the start of the pandemic. That's when I needed a deadline extension. But apart from that, I I, I pretty much write all the time. I think that's completely understandable, a pandemic. <laughs> you know, I think because you were I you were teaching through the pandemic and we salute any yeah. frontline workers, key workers, teachers who had to who had to go that must have been really, really difficult. I don't know, you know, it was more, the thing about teaching during the pandemic, everyone's experiences are really different. So like first time around, we didn't have any children. We didn't have any key worker children. So we just stayed closed. And when we did that thing where they let us open, I was talking about this with someone the other day and it it feels like, did this actually happen? The (laughs) government said we could reopen with seven children in a class. That was completely crazy. I can't believe that's something that happened seven children in a class and it was summer term so pointless and it was also just really really boring (laughs) so you know people are doing much harder things than that really during the pandemic but yeah I guess well let's let's talk about not doing that let's talk about before the pandemic because you were I've got friends who are primary school teachers and I don't know I don't know how they do it at the best of times you know because you're prepping lessons you're doing lessons you're marking stuff it's 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 a kind of this non-stop cycle and in the middle of this you're writing short stories and novels and you've got family as well how uh, you've talked previously about this double life that that you you know you're a you're a teacher and a writer how are you managing that 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 day that time how are you breaking up your day yeah, I mean, I'm disciplined, but disclaimer, like I was working part time for some of it. Right. I was lucky I applied for funding, I think, from the Society of Authors right. at one point, And I got some funding from them. And then the cost of short story prize. 
I mean, people talk about it. It's a lovely prize. You get to network. There's a nice party, but you also get three and a half grand. So things like that allowed me to cut down my days at school. Um, I was also by that point a really experienced teacher. <laughs> so I knew right. how how to do things as fast as I could. I knew the tricks. Um, I didn't do a lot of that rubbishy paperwork they make you do. And because you know, I was just like, I can't be bothered with this. I can't bother. And I have got a supportive, my mum's up the road. I do have that support in place. So I don't want it to always be like, yeah, I was teaching and I got a family and I was writing books because everybody's situation is so different but saying that there were things I knew I had to cut out I wasn't sitting at night watching television even though after you've been in the classroom with the kids you really just want to sit and watch some trashy television I'd be like no I need to get these words down and when my daughter was small you know I'd write through her nap times even though I was exhausted my house was often a mess my house still is a mess. Um, <laughs> I found the time. You've got to find the time if you really want to do it. I meet so many people who want to write and they're just like, yeah, I don't have the time. There's always time somewhere. Find yeah. it. Use yeah. it. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, we salute you for that. So you've been a teacher, but you've also benefited from a mentor, uh, the Amalsi League. Tell us about that as well. So this was really fantastic. Um, The Amalsi League, it was Arts Council funded and it wanted to find writers of colour who just needed some extra support. It was a lot of it was quite about the craft of writing. Um, My mentor was Kutia Newland, who's an amazing writer, someone I was reading um, before I even knew that I wanted to write fiction seriously. So to have him as my mentor was just incredible. It's quite hard, the course, though. I mean, he would really give us very long reading lists and we'd workshop each other's pieces and for me it was just brilliant I got a lot out of that course a lot out of it and it was free for me to take part so all these little things you know they they do take up your time and it's another thing to fit in your week but you want to write seriously they're so worth it and they Mm. are out there they are out there it can be a bit scary though you see an opportunity like that and you and you look at it and you think if I do that, I'm committing to something. I'm crossing a threshold. This, this could be. I might. Am I? I might not be the right person for this. I might not deserve it. Did you know? There's that sort of self doubt that plagues us, and we writers, we we get that a lot. Yeah. But um, you know, it's it's a matter of sort of looking and taking those opportunities, isn't it? Definitely, you've got to because as much as I say the opportunities are out there, there's not many of them, and it's so competitive. If you really, really want to do it. You've got to do it. You've got to put the hours in. There's just, there's no easy route, you know? You've got to put the hours in. And that course, I really did have to put the hours in. Mm. And because it was um, a writer who I really admired, I really wanted to impress him. So I was working really hard. And even now, you know, years after the course and I've been published, I still want to impress him. And Mm. I still want to impress the others who were on the course because they're amazing writers. And I like that element of publishing, you know, with when you're with other writers, you want to yes. impress each other and try yeah. your best. It, it helps drive you because you can't impress those people on Goodreads. No. <laughs> or, you, know, <laughs> you just can't. You just can't. So you've got to find your, your props from someone else. <laughs> so true. Absolutely true. So you talked earlier about being a novel a year writer and you mentioned uh, the next book. Is Is that kind of 
is that the dream from now on, a novel a year? And is no, is the next book on no. the way? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't want to do a novel a year. That's horrible. It sounded great, but it's horrible in reality. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I like the idea of a novel every two years. Right. And so These Streets is my third novel. And then I'm sort of thinking about my fourth or if you're my editor, I am writing my four. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have some ideas. <laughs> but, you know, I like the idea of writing in different genres as well. It's not something I've had an opportunity to do yet, but mm-hmm. I really, really would like to. Um, I still love writing short stories. Right. I really love writing short stories. And when I'm working on a novel for so long, I miss writing short stories. So maybe one day the dream is to publish a short story collection. You yeah. know, one of those collections that no one will ever buy or read. It's just yes. like for myself. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I used to work in the sales department of a publisher, and you know, when someone brought out a short story collection, it was like, okay, fine, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, though, Luanne. Yours could be the yeah, one. Yours could be the could one. Be. <laughs> <laughs> why are people not buying them they're so good they are so good it is it is weird because it's it's um there's not much money in short stories you know it's something you do for love and it's such a difficult art form to master to cram you know with a novel you've got 80 90 000 words or whatever mm. and you know it's spread out whereas with a short story there's nowhere to hide there's nowhere <laughs> to hide, you know, it's all there and it can be read twice in an hour, you know, and um, it, you've really got to, it's a, it's a great way to, to, to hone your craft, I think, absolutely. Definitely, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but, but not a get-rich-quick scheme. <laughs> <laughs> but neither is writing novels unless I'm missing something. <laughs> Well, Luann, whatever you do next, uh, it's going to be full of life like the books that you've written already. So we we can't wait for it. And uh, we wish you all the best of luck and hope to speak to you again soon. Brilliant. Thank you. Do you know, Mark, this is a fascinating, fascinating interview. There's so much to discuss, isn't there? The thing that jumped out initially, which I found fascinating, was about this idea of writing dialogue and then kind of fitting things around. Very much like a screenplay, but I've never heard an author do that before. Yeah, it's great. It's a great idea. I mean, I I've, I will do it for certain scenes. I might not do it for the whole book, but I, you know, if I've got uh, a bit of banter or a bit of bickering or an argument between a couple of characters, I will sometimes just do stream of consciousness dialogue because that's how these characters will be interacting with each other and it, and it kind of makes sense to do that. So, um, so yeah, I think it's great. Whether or not that's... Uh, consciously or subconsciously led Luan to do it in, you know, that first person perspective, that present tense. Um, present tense uh, is is another thing. She just said, it's the way I hear it. And what I think listeners can take from that, she says, it's the way I hear it. That's her voice. That's her narrative voice, her authorial voice. And the thing, you know, the reviews that Luan gets for her books is she has an authentic voice. People read her because they're getting the truth. They're not getting some varnished kind of idealized or pretending to be someone else. That that's that's Luanne. And she's saying it's going straight from her brain onto the page. And I think that's uh we were talking about this on the Academy just this week, this idea of finding your voice and being truthful. And it took me a very long time to discover that. 
because I was trying, you know, I grew up reading Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett and tried to be like them and failed miserably because I'm me, you know, and I can only be me. And that's a really important lesson for, for writers to learn, I think. Yeah, and it's really fascinating as well that Luann gave herself this 50,000 word limit. I love the fact that she... There's a number. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I know you're right. But the, the thing, the thing that's really interesting about that, though, is um, get, by setting limits, by by giving yourself boundaries, you force yourself in a really healthy way. A lot of people think, "Oh, yeah. I don't like. I, I want to be in this creative, infinite space where I can just do anything." But we've talked about that so many times, haven't we? I mean, even within the the word count course on the academy, we talk about it's so important to actually at least pick a number that you're aiming for for your total word count. You know, is it going to be one hundred thirty thousand? Is it going to be seventy five thousand? So that you can you can start. It's a bit like if you, it's a bit like getting in a car. And not knowing how far it is to Liverpool, you know, from London. And and how can you plan a journey around? Like how, how many supplies do you need? How many stops do you need to make? How many times do you have to fill the tank with, with, with gas or petrol? So it's interesting that she picked this number, which is two, the magic number is it's like, if we think of 75,000 words, she's gone for two thirds, but it, that's, that, that feels like at 50,000, her book is going to be very, potentially dialogue heavy, which I know a lot, mm. of, a lot of books are, which is absolutely fine. I was surprised at 50,000 being the limit. I would have thought it had been lower, you know, maybe 25, 30, even 35. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's horses for courses. Isn't it? I imagine a lot of listeners are going, well, look, how long should my novel be? You know, totally. how long? And you can look these things up. It, there's no rule. There's no hard and fast rule. It's a, again, it's a question that's come up on the academy quite a bit. And I've we have been, a chart, don't we, on the academy, which we, shows all the genres, yeah, yeah, yeah. all yeah. the genres, yeah. and the average amount of words per book yeah. in that genre. Yeah. And some of them are a lot higher. Like, was it fantasy? Epic fantasy, fantasy def- definitely yeah. higher. Yeah. Anything less than one hundred twenty-five thousand words, fantasy fans are going to feel like they, you know, they are being ripped off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, you know, you can you can look these things up. I remember having a conversation with my agent because the first draft I put in of the Crow Folk was about sixty three, and he said, "Look, even Terry Pratchett's early books were seventy two, seventy three. And uh, funny enough, Ed, my agent, was able to summon that just like that. It's like he has it saved on his phone because yeah. he he must have this argument with writers all the time. So um, so yeah, have a have a look at you know at your genre and try and figure out what the the word count of some of those books are, and maybe use that." as a goal because I tend to do I'm editing at the moment uh, book four and I tend to do a fairly skinny first draft and so my first draft came in at about 70 and I want to get to 80 and now I'm you know glomming stuff onto it and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely on my way you know so that's that's how that works for me I but, remember um, as well we had that challenge with back to reality where we we came in I think at 120,000 Mm. which I was so surprised at that it yeah. was, we had gone that high. And then we actually had to go, we had to cut it back, didn't we? Yeah. To, I think, did it end up to be about 90,000, the book in the end? About that, yeah. 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 So like a, a lot of waffle. Quarter of waffle <laughs> and the first chapter went. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember us ever having, I don't think, I think, didn't we make that mistake? We never actually picked some uh, a word count that we were aiming for, did we? I don't think we actually, because that's how we ended up at 120. Yeah, we are more obsessed with the word count of the outline, weren't we? <laughs> 50,000 words. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, if yeah, anyone's yeah. if anyone's new to the podcast and wondering why we keep laughing whenever the word fifty thousand uh, words is mentioned, go back and listen to our episode with Ben Aronovich. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. You'll, no you'll love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because I, I think I think the tendency is if you don't set a limit, you will always go over. As a general rule, like ninety nine times out of a hundred authors will always go over, and and then you've got the challenge of having to then like what 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 babies do i let go here like like kill your darlings all the rest of it but like what do i have to let go of and that's much harder i like the fact that you come in as a you know skinny draft and then you and then you elaborate because it's easier to do that than it is to kind of cut back in some ways I don't know. You'll, you'll hear authors who, who will say the absolute opposite. They'll say, you right. know, I, I just pile it all on. I just slap it all against the wall and then I shape and it. Then and then go and hack cut. it like a, an yeah. untidy bush. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, like I say, horses for courses, people have different preferences. It's, uh, But I I think with me, because I'm writing a series and I know the characters and I know the precinct, I can just get on with it. And I know that I'm not necessarily doing carrying the weight of world building or character building or anything like that. Whereas if you might be starting something new, you might want to pile it on and then step back and go, okay, what's relevant? What's the good stuff? What can I, what can I toss away? Yeah. Now, another thing that Luann talked about, which I found fascinating was the amount of time that she spent working on her cover letter and synopsis when she went looking for an agent. And that really jumped out at me because I think a lot of people don't realize. Let me tell you a quick story. This is really bonkers. Oh, think down. about this. Settling, settling. <laughs> when, so I set up a record label many years ago and it got on some mailing list. And we started getting tons of demos coming in. And I used to get these emails coming in to me as, a, as, a, as the manager of the record label saying, you know, oh, you know, we're this amazing band, a four piece band from Liverpool. We're the next big thing since the Beatles. And check out this, check out this uh, like music and please sign us, basically, was the, was the, context of the email and every single one of those emails that came to me were not addressed to me personally i was on some list it was hi or hello it was never dear mark or you know mm. and i would dismiss them i'd say i'm oh, just on some mailing list i'm not you know they haven't specifically come to me and then i once thought how crazy when i looked at all these emails i was getting in like 99 percent of them were all of those ones you could just instantly dismiss and i started thinking about all these poor people who started learning the piano at four and learn all of their skills and started writing songs when they were 12. And I was thinking about the amount of hours that they've spent getting to a point where they were ready to write an album. And then they decided to start recording an album. And then they spent all this money, thousands of pounds, going to a studio and recording an album. And then they edited it. And then they spent all this money creating CD, blah, 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 blah. And then they spent five minutes <laughs> on the, on the email, yeah, yeah. non-researched, Hi, we're the best, like spelling errors and a link that didn't work. And I thought, <laughs> oh my gosh. So I loved to hear that Luann yeah. took that part of the process as seriously as writing the book. And I think a lot of people are so done by the time they've written it, but they just want to get it out. They want to find their agent and they trip up. Yeah. Like literally they see the finish line in sight and they trip up and they, they, blow it all because they'd write a rubbish covering letter or they just send an email and never follow up or so this is a very important important thing that we need to discuss because i think the vast majority of people don't do this they don't spend enough time on the cover letter and the synopsis yeah i i would agree uh, i mean my 
I'm in two minds about this because you can write a very short covering letter that's, you know, and you do research the agent and maybe let them know why you're approaching them specifically. Uh, I do worry that there are too many other podcasts, you know, out there who might say, hey, if you use this specific wording, it's like a magic spell and it will get you, you know, through. Like you say, it just takes a little bit of research to get it right. Where people do fall down, it are things like the synopsis. And I, I was talking to a writer just this week about this. And, you know, too many synopses are presented as a series of events. And then they do this, and then they do that, and mm. then they do that. Whereas I, I like to write mine in the tone of the story. I put a lot of emotion in it, the emotional roller coaster. You have to put your marketing hat on and use a bit of hyperbole. You know, they're astonished to discover this. They are betrayed. They are heartbroken. You know, so you give the person reading it an idea of that emotional roller coaster that's going through it. And yeah, mm. it is something that, um, is a lot of work it, and it comes at exactly the wrong time, you know, at the end of the process where you are, as you say, completely, completely wiped. Completely done. I know. You've got it's, to, you got to yeah, get some enthusiasm for it as well. But it's, yeah, in uh, many ways, it's, in many ways, it's like doing the movie trailer for the movie. Cause we all know if the movie trailer's rubbish, then people probably won't even get to the movie, but it's that, it's that short, succinct bit where you're pulling people in and 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 it's the bit you have to get right otherwise all the great work you've done that precedes it might have just been for maybe nothing yeah i mean most movie companies farm farm out the trailers to a it's to done by company which yeah. is why actually weirdly enough on the academy one of the biggest things that we say to people is write your we get people to write their blurb up front and then they edit their blurb you know the, the kind of synopsis on the back of the book um, when they've done, and then they, and then, then the work starts on the blurb. Then they share it with all academy members and say, "What do you think of this? Like, what should I tweak? How did?" And you get other people who read books to actually say, "Oh, this doesn't make sense, or that's not very exciting, or I wouldn't read this, or I'll definitely read this." Yeah. And 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 that's what we're talking about. It's about going to the depth where you, you're giving your amazing book and all the blood, sweat, and tears you put into that book the very best chance of having the very best, you know launch and getting people pulled in so it's super important isn't it absolutely now mark there's so much more to talk about isn't there with luann so if you are interested for patrons we've done an extra extended uh, deep dive with me and mark talking about everything we learned you will learn if you learn go to the deep dive on writing series uh, using a location You'll also learn about, should you be a book a year author? Is that realistic to you? What is a book a year author? How does it, what are the challenges of that? What are the benefits of setting goals around how often you write a book? And finally, I share a incredibly uh, heartbreaking story of when my family got evicted, um, you know, really referencing what Luann's whole story was about. And I go deep into that and tell you about something which comes from that discussion, the universal emotion that you have to connect as an author with your readers. And Mark and I really go into a lot of depth on that. So do not miss that. If you're interested in finding out more, try out the uh, extended version of this podcast by popping along to um, bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And if you're in the Academy, you'll get all that as well on the Bestseller Academy app. So Mr. Stay, tell us about what's happening on the wins on socials this week. The wins on socials, we've got some lovely ones. Well, look, Morgan Delaney. Now, we had Mark Hood, was it last week or the week before? It might be a couple of, I've, all the live shows, I'm all a bit confused about why. Mark Hood was talking about his incredible run, a thousand days of, of writing. Uh, 
as part of the 200 word a day challenge well morgan delaney again who sorts us uh, sorts us supports us sorts us and supports us over on the the, the bxp group and on patreon uh, morgan delaney he says i'm celebrating the small wins i've just written small wins one million words since starting the 200 word a day challenge he just started on december 30th 2019 as per mr d's instruction to start straight away rather than waiting for the new year so that's why he sent us a a chart a spreadsheet with everything on this is that's why i've i've words from 2019 hooray so yeah amazing so in 20 so 2019 he did 4.8 thousand words in 200 in 2020 he did 330,000 words in 2021 he's done 427,000 words and 2022 year to date where we september he's done nearly 240,000 so over a million amazing um, fantastic all adds up doesn't it do you know what, Mark? This fills fills me up. To, I mean, it's just amazing—a million words. I mean, let's let's just think about that. How many people in a lifetime, authors? Uh, I mean, I know kids do a, a million words texting a year easy, but how many authors do have written a million words in their lifetime? And Morgan's done this in just or well, less well what, less than three years. Yeah, it kind of makes you think about like I always like to future cast this now that 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 momentum is going and that habit has set in. And, and the big thing about two hundred word challenges, we're trying to help you create a, a writing habit for a lifetime. Like, what's that going to mean to Morgan over the next you know ten, twenty, thirty years in terms of what he's uh, what they're creating? And I just think it's amazing. I mean, it blows me away. It's like it's 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 like. I mean, with him and Mark Hood doing what they're doing, the consecutive days and the number of words, absolutely brilliant. So congratulations, Morgan. What an inspiration. And who else is out there that's done something of yeah. that? I mean, even I mean, even if it's not, you know, a million, if it's like, you know, half a million, quarter of a million words, tell us about it. Celebrate. We want to hear about these wins. Absolutely brilliant. Superb stuff. Now, talking about the Academy, got a, a thing on the Academy from Kay Vincent. I think she's been in the Academy for a week. And this is headlined, The Bestseller Academy Changed My Life. <laughs> so she's been there a week. Uh, you can't guarantee this is going to work for everyone, but, you know, this is impressive. So Kay says, I had a duh moment yesterday and think I might have some sort of breakthrough in my life, let alone my writing. And she says, I've just finished the writing habits module. I was wondering how I could incorporate the information into my daily existing checklist spreadsheet and then i suddenly realized i can include columns not just for the tasks themselves but for the triggers and rewards as well i feel like a bit of an idiot i've been using checklists for years and i've known about behavioral triggers for years but in all that time i've never combined the two holy cow what a difference this has made i've got every single task in my daily list achieved today okay most of my tasks were fairly ambi unambitious um, but I'm, for now i'm celebrating the wins that's fantastic tell us uh, so you 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 this is your thing isn't it? the writing it is, habits yeah. module this is you mr d tell us it's, about yeah that. well it's a it's a writing course on the academy which is about looking at you know creating goals and also about looking at word count and it's about linking what you're doing not just as a task list like because everyone uses basic task lists but it's about it's about breaking things down but it's also about linking it to reward as well which makes it more of a game if i like to think of it as something called gamification um mm -hmm. you know going through the some of the drudgery that we have to, whether it's, you know, doing the washing up or, you know, for some people doing their edits, if you can gamify it, if you can make it kind of a challenge, like the 200 word challenge, it's like, can I write 200 words today? It it, it makes it so much easier. Um, and it can sometimes, and the big thing is it can sometimes break through the procrastination, which so many of us deal with. 
Um, so yeah, it's a lot of psychology that's gone into it, but absolutely brilliant to hear how it's you know instant, had instant impact on Kay. And and this is the thing I've always said on with the life coaching side of you know what we're doing with writers. You know, there's a lot of obviously craft is essential, and there's craft books coming out coming out of your wazoo basically. But there's very little that's helping writers with their personal growth and personal development from the writer's perspective. And the thing is, is that when you learn it through writing, as Kay mentioned, it's instantly applicable to everything else you're doing in your life, you know, whether it's your shopping list, or whether it's yeah. the jobs you've got to do in the house. And that's, that's the kind of up, up kind of the, the benefit, if you like, of choosing something to work on your personal growth, whether it's writing or, or you know, studying something, it's going to have a knock on effect throughout everything you do in your life. And you just become a, you know, a more happy, happier person and you get, you, life becomes more simple and more easier to, to win at. Um, so yeah, really pleased to hear about that with Kay. Uh, we've also got some great news from Michaela Limkin, who again, been in the Academy, just uh, started recently. She said, reading other people's goals, I'm realizing I should celebrate that I actually finished writing a book. Most of my friends are completely underwhelmed by this, but having done it, I know it's a biggie. Uh, and uh, I was really touched when my underwhelmed friend's cousin, a professional book cover designer, said, firstly, congratulations on finishing your book. He's right. It's an amazing achievement. She said, the thing that inspired me most to actually write my book was hearing on the podcast that practically every author says their first draft was always rubbish, but it just had to be done and that after it's writing you would know you were actually what you're actually writing about so that's how she started out so this is fantastic Michaela you know she's got uh, I think it's a non-fiction book coming soon we were talking about her blurb on uh, on the, the craft writing coaching session the other night so congratulations on that Michaela yeah absolutely fantastic and again it's always something little it can be a little thing that you hear that can end up in a massive breakthrough as well you just don't quite know what that thing's going to be for you but like if you've got your radars open there's, there's so much good stuff out there so brilliant brilliant to hear and last uh, on the social media wins this week but by no means least uh edward kane who i think has been listening to us from pretty much near the beginning and um i've been privileged to work on a couple of his projects as well so he's he's an amazing writer uh edward kane got in touch he said i got an email i can't talk about this morning and i thought Lies. of mr yeah, I know, but it's great, isn't it? He says, I thought of Mr. D because he's always saying to celebrate and enjoy every little milestone. And it's just so damn cool to be able to say, I got an email I can't talk about. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. So this is, Ed is Love teasing it. us with news to always. come. So Ed, congrats with that. Whatever it is, it's, yeah, we're very well, happy Well, whatever you. it is, to Ed, you're going to have to tell us now when yeah, you yeah. announce it and damn we will right. talk about it. I love it. Brilliant. Oh, that's <laughs> superb. I love it. That's so a trailer, folks, as we talked about earlier, right? Is it? Yeah, so <laughs> folks, yes. Look, if you've got any news, drop us a line. Uh, if you go to bestsellerexperiment.com, there's a contact tab there. You can email us directly. Or you can find us on social media. Facebook is Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Absolutely. And, and as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, and I'd like to remind everyone, if you are not on the mailing list, please go and sign up to it so you can do our, our annual listeners survey. We really do want your feedback. And as more people give us feedback, the, the better hopefully this show will become for you all. So we want to, we want you to give us a feedback. So go to bestsellerexperiment.com right now. Pause the podcast, bestsellerexperiment.com, in your little email, in your URL rather, stick it in your browser and go to the newsletter tab on our website. Just put your email address in, press the button, and then you will get the survey. It's coming out quite soon. So um, thank you to everyone in advance who does that. Also, remember, folks, 200-word challenge. You're hearing about the million words that Morgan did. Now, Morgan didn't realize on the 31st of December 2019 that in you know nearly three years from then, we would be talking about his success for a million. These are some of the stories 
that we are hearing. And there's a lot more we don't know about. So if you have been doing the challenge, please let us know how it's been working for you. But if you've not done it and you do want to start this habit of a lifetime, 200wordchallenge.com free challenge just go and sign up and get started today or tomorrow but don't wait don't wait the rest of your life to make this happen and then finally if you would like to find out more about the academy there is a waitlist now for the next intake pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and we will let you know more details as and when and uh mr state that all leaves me with uh wish you a very very good week hope your writing goes you too fantastically well and uh it's a goodbye from mark one and I'm about to sneeze. It's a goodbye from Mark too. I'm holding <laughs> <Goodbye>. it in. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>